Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Skype a Scientist Live podcast. Today, we're going to be hearing from Katie O'Reilly, a freshwater fish biologist at Notre Dame in the Lamberti Lab. Katie is also a science communication fellow as part of the National Sea Grant. Before we hear from Katie, I just want to remind everyone that we have Skype a Scientist merch on skypeascientist.com, and we're always accepting donations to keep the program going at patreon.com slash scientist. Now I'm going to turn it over to Katie. Thank you. It, I do love this shirt. I figured, you know, I really, when you get to be a fish scientist, you start to accumulate really silly looking shirts, but this is one of my favorites. So thanks guys. What is, oh, we have a question already and it is officially one o'clock so I can get into it. Um, I'll give my whole spiel afterwards, but I want to definitely answer um, Angelina's question, what, which is what is the biggest freshwater fish? And that is an awesome question. Um, there are a couple different ways of looking at it in terms of like a big fish being long versus a big fish weighing a lot. Um, and so we are really, you know, there's a lot of really cool fish that we're going to talk about today. Um, but some of the biggest fish, there's one called the Mekong catfish. So if you've ever seen a catfish with the little whiskers on it, um, if you're in North America, you've seen kind of small catfish, maybe they can get, you know, kind of big. The Mekong catfish gets really big. And this is a fish that lives in Southeastern Asia. Um, and it is, it is really cool. I will see if I can bring up a picture at some point during my talk. Um, and I, I, if, if I don't get to pick up a picture, you guys should totally Google Mekong catfish and you'll just be like, how is that even a, a fish? Cause it looks more like a small dog or actually not even small dog, probably like a really big dog. Um, so now that I, I, you know, already started launching into the freshwater fish, I just want to give you guys, um, I want to say thank you for joining me. Uh, my name is Katie O'Reilly, and I am leading today's Skype a Scientist Live um, all about freshwater fish and the awesome, cool places they call home. Um, as you can see, I'm not, I'm kind of a weird scientist. I'm actually a PhD student, so that means I'm still in the process of you know, doing research to, to become a, a doctor, so, a, you know, a full-fledged scientist, but I, I really enjoy learning about the world around me, and being a student is a, a great time to get research. Ooh, and someone did provide a link to the Mekong catfish, so thank you for that. Um, but so, getting back to things, I am a PhD student at the University of Notre Dame, uh, which is a university in Indiana in the United States. Um, I'm actually not in Indiana right now. Um, you can see I'm not a scientist in a traditional lab setting this year. I'm doing a fellowship in Washington, DC, which is more science policy. So um, if I get a chance to talk, or if you guys have questions about what being a scientist working in the government uh, is like, and kind of, you know, seeing how, you know, science can get applied in lots of different ways, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, but so when I'm wearing my grad student hat back at the University of Notre Dame, I am uh, a freshwater scientist. I look at uh, freshwater ecosystems and particularly the fish that call uh, these ecosystems home. Uh, I particularly look at the North American Great Lakes. So if you ever heard the term like homes, there's Lakes Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie and Superior. 
And this is one of the largest freshwater ecosystems on Earth. So it's a really cool place to do a lot of science and there's some really awesome fish there. Um, but first off, like when I say ecosystem, what exactly am I talking about? What do I mean by that? Um, in ecology, which is the study of ecosystems, it's uh, an ecosystem is all of the living things, so all the plants and animals that are in a particular area, as well as all of the non-living things that are around them. So think of things like sun, the dirt, the weather, um, the atmosphere around it, the, the air. And together an ecosystem is all of those parts, it's the living things, the plants and animals interacting with these non-living things. Uh, and what's really cool about that for me as a scientist who's studying these ecosystems, I like to think of studying ecosystems as a bit of a puzzle. Uh, in order to see the big picture, to see how everything works, you have to look at all these little different pieces put together. Um, and there's so many different kinds of ecosystems. You know, if you're, I, I do the freshwater stuff, as I kind of said, but there you can study forests, you can study grasslands, you can study oceans. Um, and there's, so we generally, because there are so many of these things called ecosystems, we generally tend to group them into being either aquatic, which is water-based. So that's things like the ocean, like fresh waters, um, or terrestrial, which is land-based. So as I kind of said, a terrestrial ecosystem could be something like a forest, a grassland, um, and then within aquatic ecosystems, so those water-based ecosystems, uh, they can either be salty. So, you know, you go to the ocean, you're, you're dealing with salt water, or they can be fresh. So these are things like rivers, lakes, ponds. Um, and what I find really cool and what drew me to doing freshwater ecosystem science is that freshwater systems are all around us. Um, you know, you can have things, everything from the mighty Mississippi River here in North America, which is this huge, massive river, um, to the large Great Lakes, which contain about 20% of the world's freshwater, um, which is really, that just blows my mind every time I think about it. Um, so you have these really big ecosystems, but what's also cool and what's also an ecosystem are really small things. So think of like a small creek maybe in your backyard or uh, a pond. There's even uh, ecosystems within, a, you know, plants. So some plants uh, can contain, like, they can hold a little bit of water. And then within that water in a single plant, you can have an entire ecosystem. So plants, animals just develop within a single plant. To me, that's so cool thinking about, we can study things every from massive oceans, the Great Lakes, all the way down to these very small little places. And they all have similar uh, similar characteristics uh, at certain, certain levels. So that's really cool to me. Um, as I said, I study the Great Lakes uh, of North America, which is just a really, if, if you've never seen the Great Lakes, it's hard to believe like how massive they are. Um, when you think of the word lake, you tend that, you know, you kind of think, okay, you know, small body water, I can maybe see across, across the surface. Um, but the Great Lakes are really more like freshwater oceans. So they're not salty, but you can't look across them. When you look across, you just keep seeing water. 
Um, they have rolling waves, they have currents, um, they're really deep. And so for me, it's really cool, um, you know, looking at these freshwater ecosystems on a big scale and seeing how the fish uh, within these ecosystems live and uh, live in, and contribute to the rest, and they play a part in their ecosystem. So specifically, I've given you just my whole ecosystems are really cool. You know, this is, this is the setting for which we have these really cool characters called fish. Um, and so what, it may sound silly, but like, what is a fish exactly? Um, and that might seem like an easy question to, to answer, but it's actually pretty difficult for scientists to define what makes a fish a fish. Um, because there's just so much diversity in the shapes and sizes um, and just all the general characteristics of fish. Uh, because I'm not in my lab and I'm in Washington, D.C. right now, I, I can't show you real fish. Um, so I brought in a couple of my stuffed, uh, stuffed animal example friends um, and just showing, you know, this is obviously not super scientific, but there is a whole diversity of freshwater shapes and sizes, anything from like a salmon, which has kind of your traditional fish body shape, um, to more primitive fish, such as a sturgeon, um, which if you like primitive fish, you should totally check out um, an earlier Skype a Scientist live session uh, with Dr. Solomon David, who really likes to talk about um, some really weird looking fish if you're interested in that, that diversity. Um, so, but getting back to the question of what makes a fish a fish, there are, even though there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot of variation in the shapes and sizes of these animals, um, they, in general, in general, that'll be my disclaimer, they, in general, uh, are animals with, uh, they're animals called vertebrates, so they're animals with a backbone. They uh, live in water. They uh, fish breathe primarily using their gills, so not lungs like we do as mammals. Um, and they also, so again, we, so we said they have a backbone, they live in water, they breathe using their gills. They also um, are what we call cold-blooded, so they can't maintain their internal temperature. Um, as well, and they also, the, another thing is they have scales. So we have a few general guidelines of what we consider a fish. And you've probably got an image in your head of, you know, what what's a fish you think of? Is it like a goldfish in a, a pond or in a, a tank? Um, but as I've kind of already, you know, given away the answer, there's within the, that broad category, um, there are so many exceptions to this, these guidelines. Um, for example, uh, as I alluded to a little bit earlier with these primitive fish, the ones that have kind of really awesome, cool um, body shapes, some of these primitive fish like lungfishes um, and, and gars actually can, you know, breathe air um, using structures that, you know, are more similar to lungs than, than gills. So, you know, that's that's off, you know, not all fish just rely on their gills. Um, uh, there's a fish called a mudskipper, 
which can live outside the water, can actually use its um, its pectoral fins, which are kind of the fins at the front of the fish. Um, I could actually point out on my whiteboard if the glare isn't too bad. So uh, it can use pectoral, uh, which are these fins, as well as sometimes the pelvic fins. They can use these structures to, uh, you know, help them walk across land and live in muddy environments. Um, so, you know, not all fish have to live in water all the time. Uh, another, another expectation. Um, and, you know, there's even some fish, and so I'm, I'm veering out of the freshwater sphere, but there's some fish uh, like tuna that can actually regulate their body temperature. And so they're not the traditional cold-blooded fish that we think of. So I think that's part of what really drew me to studying fish is that there's so many cool examples that we group into this study of fish that we call ichthyology. Um, and there's so much diversity and it's fun figuring out, you know, why, why are fish, why are certain fish shaped or have, um, you know, different things that help them survive in their environment, their ecosystem. Um, and that is, it, it's the problem, it's studying the adaptations that allow them to be successful in different environments. And that's just really cool to me as well. Um, and I don't know if I've said it too many times, but if you've been paying attention, sometimes I use the word fish and other times I use the word fishes. So it, fish is one of those weird words in which, you know, it's not plural all the time, um, but it's a little more complicated than traditionally saying like, you know, plural versus singular. Um, as scientists, we use fish to refer to multiple individuals of the same species. So say I had 20 of these little salmon uh, stuffed animals, I would say I had 20 fish. If I had 20 of a mix of these two animals, I would say I have 20 fishes. So the fish is referring to a bunch of different, you know, different individuals of one species whereas fishes is more generally used for a group of a bunch of different species, um, which is just kind of a weird fishy fun fact. That's not actually more science, but it, it's something that as scientists we, we talk about, and I always like sharing that little, little blurb. Um, and I'm almost done with the end of my spiel because I want to get to some of your great questions, uh, but where I kind of you know, got drawn in, in addition to just thinking fish are these super cool organisms um, that are so incredibly diverse and live in all different habitats. You can find fish from the very deepest parts of the ocean to, you know, one lake on a mountain somewhere, and that's the only place it lives. Um, so uh, fish are remarkable in that you can find them almost anywhere, you know, anywhere there's water in some cases, um, and they have the adaptations to help them live in that environment. Um, but the other parts of the fish are awesome. The other part of what drove me to go to grad school and want to study freshwater ecology is that um, freshwater ecosystems like the Great Lakes um, are just really, uh, they're, they're really threatened because we rely on them so much, like humans rely on them for water, we rely on them uh, for catching fish, we rely on them for creating our energy in some cases. Um, and so because humans have such a close relationship with 
the water that's around them, things like rivers and lakes, that means they also face a lot of threats um, that come from human interaction. So this is everything, um, if you think of an environmental threats, environmental issues, they all are very front and center when it comes to freshwater ecosystems. So one of the biggest things um, that specifically like is a threat to freshwater uh, ecosystems throughout the world is what we call habitat modification, which is just a long word for saying we're changing how a river or a lake, uh, the structure of it. So the best example of that is uh, when we create dams on, on rivers. So we're harnessing the power of um, the river to create energy, to um, you know, regulate the flow to help provide water, but at the same time, that can also uh, can also mean that fish can't get to places they normally would. So, if you're a salmon, again, you're a salmon who needs to swim upstream to uh, get to the place where you were you were spawned or born um, to lay your eggs and produce the next class of salmon. Um, if someone has a dam there, unfortunately, you don't you're not like the mud skipper and you can't go out of the water. So you can't walk around and get beyond that dam and go upstream. So for these species that need to travel long distances that we call migratory fish, um, things like dams and other structures can really uh, affect how much they, they can get to places where they need to feed, they need to spawn or reproduce. Um, so that's one major threat that is happening around the world. And uh, the Mekong catfish that we talked about right at the beginning of the t uh, time is one of those animals that's threatened by uh, the creation of dams on some of the rivers in Southeast Asia. Um, so it's that is a, a big issue that um, really affects a lot of freshwater ecosystems around the world. Um, another one, we could go on and on about all of the different things that, that affect uh, freshwater ecosystems. Um, and while there are a lot of challenges, that I think it gives us a lot of time to you know work on solutions. And we have a lot of amazing people. And I've, known, I've learned this working here in Washington, DC, there's a lot of amazing people working on solutions for these challenges. So it there's a lot that, that uh, kind of, a lot of things that threaten freshwater ecosystems, and that's one of the things and uh, that we are going to work on to help help protect the awesome, cool, amazing, crazy fish that I love so much. So that was just a lot of information to throw at you guys, but this is for you to ask me questions, so I want to make sure I get to those. Um, so we talked about what the biggest freshwater fish is, which Angela is a great question, or Angelina is a great question. Um, I would say, so the Mekong catfish is one of them. Um, another really big freshwater fish, I don't know if it's considered the biggest, are some of the sturgeon species that live in North America. Those are some pretty awesome animals. Um, they are uh, just really, they can grow really, really big, which leads into another question that I wanted to get to, um, which is, is it, David asks, is it true that keeping a fish in a small tank will keep its body small? To be honest, I have not had too much experience, um, you know, raising fish. I know that's kind of the, the myth is that, you know, you keep it in there and it will constrain, uh, constrain the growth because, you know, can only get so big. But if, you know, 
I don't know. I think that's you have to have an appropriate size tank for your fish because um, that's you know not kind of fair to the fish fish's size. Uh, but that is a great question. I, I'm going to defer to I think some of my more aquarium-minded friends. I typically so most of my my research is field based, so I don't actually spend a lot of time with fish in tanks in the lab. Um, but I, that is a great question that I'm hoping you know maybe someone else can chime in and and give us an answer to. I, I'm used to just like finding my fish in, in nature, and then uh, the fun part about what I do a lot of times is I can you know catch the fish. We do our measurements and you know see how long they are. Um, you know what kind of species we find. And then we can release them. So that's always really fun for me because it's like, oh, you know, have a good life, fish. Um, thanks for contributing to science. Uh, but yeah, great question. And if I see an update, I will let you know, David. Um, another one, which is uh, from uh, Mrs. Lindquist's class in Florida, is Are there any endangered freshwater fish? And that also is a phenomenal question because, uh, like I kind of mentioned at the end of my spiel, there are a lot of threats against freshwater, and that is um, leading to a lot of uh, endangered freshwater species. So it particularly, I can speak from the kind of North American side, because that's where I do most of my work and I'm most familiar with species. Um, there are a lot of endangered species uh, in particular regions. So in the southeastern U.S., there are a lot of different fish species because there's a lot of different, there's a lot of biodiversity. And um, a lot of these species just already have very small ranges. So a range is kind of like, you know, I, I could say, you know, when I live in Washington, D.C., my range is the D.C. area. It's where I live. It's where I can go to the store. I can, you know, visit friends. A fish's range is kind of similar. It's like all the places you can find the fish normally. Um, so in a lot of cases, these the species that are in the southeast U.S. Um, have pretty small ranges, like maybe it's just one stream or a couple streams um, in one part of the state. And so with these fish, because they already have such a small area that they live in, any threat, so say someone builds a dam or someone, you know, uh, is cutting down some trees and that causes a lot of sedimentation. So a lot of soil going into the stream and messing, you know, messing up the kind of status quo. Uh, any any small change can have really big effects and can cause, um, you know, that species to uh, disappear or go extinct. And so, yeah, so there are definitely endangered freshwater fish, um, especially a lot of these kind of rare um, nor, like they're normally rare um, or have like small ranges in which they live. So that is a great question. And they're um, in addition to fish, because, you know, even though I love fish and this is all all fish, there are also other animals that live in freshwater ecosystems um, that are pretty endangered. Uh, again, speaking from the North American side of things, uh, freshwater mussels. So you think you know, when you go to the beach, you think of like clams, maybe oysters, things with a shell. Um, there, we also have freshwater mussels and a lot of really cool, diverse species of mussels um, in our streams, our rivers, our lakes. And a lot of these uh, have also either, you know, they're really threatened or they're endangered uh, because 
being a muscle, um, you know, you don't exactly have legs again to take you anywhere. You're kind of stuck when you're when you're an adult. When you're a larva, you can kind of float on currents and move that way. Um, another really cool fact. Sorry, I'm thinking because freshwater mussels are actually cool because they need fish um, to complete their life cycle. So get this: when you have when you're a freshwater mussel, you know, you're hanging out at the bottom of the stream, you know, doing your mussel things. And if you want to reproduce, you know, have babies, you actually need to have a fish host. So a fish will be, you know, swimming on by and the mussels like, how do I get this fish's attention? So the mussels have evolved to have these little, um, almost like lures. So think of like a fishing lure. The mussel will put this out it attracts the fish. Sometimes it looks like a small fish that they can come eat. And then the mussel, uh, when the fish comes close, it's like, oh, hey, awesome, little snack. Um, the fish will basically get a face full of mussel babies, as weird as that may sound. But the mussel will send out some of its eggs um, to live on the fish's gills. And that's a key part of their life cycle. Um, Again, I think I'm gonna to have to find a video and share that with you guys, because that is just, it's its really cool to see because it's an, uh, an example of how two species need each other. So the freshwater fish need these, or the freshwater mussels need these freshwater fish. Um, and in some cases, like when we talked about dams, the freshwater, if the freshwater fish can't get to someplace, then the mussels don't have the host that they need to take their babies and help them complete their life cycle. So. Again, it goes back to that idea that ecology is all of these little pieces kind of tied together. And if you remove one part of an ecosystem, you can have effects that kind of, it's like dominoes. Everything kind of collapses because you took out a part that connects to a lot of different other pieces. Um, so yeah, and fresh, freshwater mussels, I feel like we need a freshwater mussel Skype session because that those are also just really cool animals. Um, they have cool names like, um, heel splitter, um, it, it's wild. I, they're, they're really cool animals as well. Um, okay, uh, next one uh, from Becca is, is there any similarity between fish that live deep in freshwater and fish that live deep, deep in salt water? That is a phenomenal question. Um, so freshwater and saltwater fish in general um, have, I mean, they can look very similar um, you know, body shape. Uh, one of the biggest things between fresh and saltwater fish that's different is something you can't actually see really easily. Um, it's the fact that their internal body chemistry um, is very different. And so what I mean by that is saltwater fish, marine fish live in a very salty environment, um, obviously. But because of that, the salt water is always, because you're living in salt water, it's always continuously bringing water out of your body. So these fish are always trying to like not become dehydrated. Um, if you've ever tried to drink salt water, which please don't, children, this is not a, not a good decision to make. Um, salt water, drinking salt water will actually dehydrate you more. So these fish have to have adaptations to, um, deal with that dehydration. So what they do is uh, their body is always trying to conserve um, water. And so they don't pee very much. And when they do pee, it's just a little 
little bit, um, and that's a way of them helping to regulate their body chemistry. Freshwater fish, on the other hand, have kind of the opposite problem. Um, they're living in an environment where there's actually less salt in the water that surrounds them than the salt is just naturally in their body. So water is always coming into their body. Um, and this, you know, you might think, okay, well, too much water, whatever. But that can actually really throw off uh, the fish's body chemistry. And in that case, one of the ways that they deal um, with trying to keep their their salts, their ions, so we say, um, regulated is by peeing all the time. And I mean it like all the time. They are, I think somewhere they can pee up to about a third of their body weight every day. And that to me is just wild. It's like, wow. Um, and, but it's, it's very dilute urine or pee. And so this is just because they're trying to get rid of all that water without losing too many of the salts or ions that are inside their body. Um, so in general, like those, so a saltwater fish and a freshwater fish deal with their environment again in a different way. Um, and that is, you know, that's kind of just the inside part of things. But um, in terms of deep specifically, like, so when we're talking about really deep depths, uh, fish have, again, adaptations that help them, uh, help them deal with the really, you know, these really extreme environments. So deep, deep oceans and deep lake, like really deep lakes, so things like Lake Superior, um, have a lot of similarities. You have high pressure, so you've got all this water pushing down on a fish. Um, think about if you go if you dive down to the bottom of a pool and your ears start to hurt, that's kind of the pressure um, pushing down on you and, and just kind of a fraction of what a fish would be feeling. Um, so they have to have adaptations to deal with the pressure. They also have to adapt to uh, uh, having not a lot of light. So in some cases, depending on how clear your lake is, you might be able to get a little bit of light near the bottom. Um, but at like the deepest depths of say Lake Superior or Lake Michigan, you're not gonna get any light at the bottom either. And in the deep sea, if you've ever seen Finding Nemo when they go way down to the bottom, you know, it's it's dark down there and animals have to create their own light so that they can, um, you know, they can see each other, they can find food. Um, and that that's a process we call bioluminescence. Um, so they've got pressure, they've got, um, They've got this really dark environment where it's, you know, they have to figure out how do I find food? How do I find, you know, my friends? Uh, and then they also have to deal, you know, these are, it's usually pretty cold down there too. Um, you know, you have the sun warming up the top layers of your lake or your ocean, um, but it tends to generally get colder the further deep down you go. So you've got, you know, pressure, dark, cold. And because you've got kind of similar factors, um, you're going to have kind of similar adaptations in terms of your fish. So with their bodies, you know, sometimes one way of dealing with it, uh, dealing with these uh, environments is you have real, like your eyes are really reduced. So sometimes deep water fish, if you see pictures of them, they look a bit like aliens because they've got like either no eyes or their eyes are really tiny. Um, and that's just because they don't need their eyes to see. They're not going to see anything down there anyway. Um, and it's, you know, they've evolved other senses that help them better find their, their way around. So uh, one of the things that 
you know, a fish can do other than like relying on its eyesight is this thing called, again, we're going back to the silly looking little fish I've got. It's this thing called a lateral line. So in some cases, in some fishes, you can see this lateral line a lot easier, um, but it's basically a sensory organ that uh, fish use to feel kind of the pressure around them and that, that they can use that to sense um, sense prey, sense other fish um, without relying as much on their eyesight. So it's a, you know, the eye, eyesight is one adaptation that freshwater and saltwater fish may share um, when they are adapted for living at really deep depths. Um, as well as sometimes their bodies just look really strange. If you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen uh, like a blobfish, uh, it doesn't exactly look great when you bring it up to the surface, but that's because, you know, its body is adapted for the requirements of what you, what you need to survive at the bottom of the ocean. And so sometimes that involves having a body structure that's really flexible, um, you know, and basically creating ways that your body will withstand that enormous pressure uh, that you have. Um, and there's a little bit of that in the freshwater side as much too. I would say there's definitely more, more marine or saltwater fish uh, that are adapted for life in the deep, just because you know you, we have deep oceans all around the world. There's only uh, probably a handful of lakes that get really deep and get kind of that dark, um, you know, dark, cold, high pressure environment that we're talking about. Um, I mean, I'm thinking it's things like Lake Superior, uh, which is part of the North American Great Lakes where I do my work. Um, lake uh, Baikal, which is in Russia, which is the deepest lake. Um, also, fun fact, Lake Baikal in Russia has the only exclusively uh, freshwater seal species. So that's really cool. It's like, you know, you always, we always see seals in marine environments, but there's actually a lake where you can find seals. Um, that is always just a really cool fact for me. And then um, there's some of the Great Lakes uh, in Africa. So Africa also has a system uh, that are referred to as the Great Lakes. Some of those lakes are really deep and have fish that are adapted for more of that deep environment, but definitely more deep adapted fish in the oceans for sure. So uh, Nick asks, how do fish get into ponds that are isolated from other water? That, you guys have just amazing questions. I'm just, this is really cool. Um, the, so one of, that's one of the challenges I think a lot of, you know, some researchers are looking into is like, you know, say you have a small pond that's not connected to anything else. There's no stream that connects it. There's no river. You know, how do fish move around in that case? Um, one of the ways is actually humans. So uh, in a lot of places, humans have introduced fish to different ecosystems um, because they want to catch fish. You know, that's one of the one of the ways people connect with fish is because they like going fishing. They like catching fish. And um, in some cases, that means that they bring the fish with them, uh, which is not always a great thing. Um, in some, it's it can be if a fish isn't native or not, you know, met, I wouldn't say met. it's not native to an area. So it's not originally from there. Um, by bringing in a fish that's not from there originally, that can actually throw off the ecosystem because you've introduced a piece 
that, you know, isn't, it hasn't been in contact with the other plants and animals there. And sometimes it throws off the food web. So who eats who? Um, and it's a, a non-native species that's been introduced somewhere where it's not originally from. Um, we, if it has a lot of negative effects, we call it an invasive species. Um, so one fish that I can think of that's an invasive species in the Great Lakes is uh, actually from the oceans. It's a marine fish called the sea lamprey. Um, and that was not brought intentionally. So it was brought, uh, or it came to the Great Lakes from the ocean, uh, but through some of the canals that had been built uh, to allow ships to move in and out of the Great Lakes and connect to the ocean. So that was kind of an inadvertent way that the humans introduced the, the sea lamprey to the Great Lakes. The, they wouldn't normally have been able to get there, but we made it easy enough that they could swim into a new place. Like humans created that connection between the two ecosystems. So in some cases, you know, in some cases, maybe it's a chance thing. Like there's a really big flood and um, a fish gets from one, nor like one, it's normal place and it gets to a new pond. Um, and then, you know, it, it gets swept away and then that flood is not there. And then that pond is isolated. Sometimes things like that happen. There's always a lot of weird chance events in nature um, which makes studying nature so much fun because you never know what's going to happen. Um, but so there's the natural ways like a flood, um, you know, maybe an animal has picked up a fish and dropped it off somewhere. Who knows? It's a bird. Those, those darn birds always picking, picking fish up and then dropping them places. Um, but it's also a lot of times because humans have moved uh, fish there for one reason or another, but that's a great question, Nick. So thank you. Um, Ooh, are there bioluminescent fish like there are in the marine environment? That, that actually is a great question. I, to my knowledge, I, I don't know any off the top of my head, but I definitely would like to look that up because if anywhere, I think, you know, maybe some of the, some of those deep lakes that I, I talked about a little bit earlier, that might be where they exist. Um, but you know, I really don't know. That's a that's a fantastic question, and I am going to be looking that one up. Um, bioluminescent freshwater fish. We got a team fish. We got to get on it. Um, another one. What types of fish do the big beluga fish eat? Hmm. So with beluga fish, um, I know there's a beluga cavi or like beluga sturgeon. Um, and they're, you know, it's weird, but we, a lot of times fish have names that are like based on other animals. So sometimes you say like lionfish or uh, I'm blanking on it, but so it's funny because like a lot of times you're like talking about fish and you're like, oh, this is like another animal. Um, but I know the beluga sturgeon and sturgeon are really cool and that they have like a, and this is talking again, based on my knowledge of the North American sturgeon, which are pretty similar. Uh, they the sturgeon can actually like vacuum up. Uh, so they, they hang out on the bottoms of like streams, lakes, rivers, and they use their like suction mouth to vacuum up. Um, you can kind of see he's got his mouth on the bottom of his body. Um, they use that mouth to suction up bugs and algae, plankton uh, that are kind of hanging out in the bot along the bottom of these rivers um, and lakes. And so they, they kind of, we call them benthic uh, for hanging out at the bottom and, um, you know, 
feeding on things that are also hanging out on the bottom. Um, but sturgeon are cool in that they kind of have this vacuum vacuum mouth uh, that sucks stuff up, and that's always a really fun adaptation. Uh, again, it's an adaptation to suit their environment because the sturgeon live on on the bottom of the river. They have their mouth on the bottom so that it makes it easier to feed. Some fish um, that live in the water column, so that means like you know they're above the above the bottom of the river or lake, um, and they're hanging out in the middle of the water. They have their mouth um, either they can have their mouth in the front. Others are going to say the sturgeon has the mouth, or not the sturgeon, the salmon has the mouth in the front of its body. Um, well, some fish even have their mouth pointed up so that they can eat stuff that's hanging out kind of above them in the water. Um, and again, the place the placement of the mouth is one of those things that just helps. Uh, it, it's an adaptation so that they can be successful, they can survive in their environment, because that's really... You know, fish are like all other animals. Their main thing in life is to survive. And so whatever are the ways that they can do that, you know, if it's a mouth that helps them feed a little easier, um, it's a body shape that helps them swim a little faster. These are things that give them a bit of an advantage. And that means that they can survive and then have babies that might share those, those same uh, characteristics or attributes with them. So that's kind of where we think about, you know, oh, this fish is adapted to its environment. It's it's the strong and the ones who are best adapted who are surviving and, and reproducing or having babies. Um, let me see if I've hit all of the questions thus far. You guys have awesome questions. Those are just really fun. Um, I do want to say hi to uh, Mr. Chapman's fifth grade science class in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for joining me guys. And you are learning about different ecosystems and how food webs work. Um, and I have to say, I love food webs. So uh, within, you know, I said I study ecology, which is the study of all these different pieces. Um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing for my PhD work is food web based. And I'm looking at food webs in, uh, Coastal wetlands, which wetlands are another type of aquatic ecosystem. Uh, wetlands are kind of this weird in between um, terrestrial aquatic ecosystem. Uh, a wetland is like a marsh or a swamp. Um, so it's a place where you've got a lot of like plants and it's kind of like muddy. Uh, I like to joke, you know, just jump in and get all muddy and like play around uh, stomping in the, the marsh all day. Um, but it's also really important because there are areas of water where a lot of really cool fish species live. Um, and so I'm looking at the food webs in these wetlands, which are really unique because you have parts coming in from the terrestrial or the land, as well as parts coming in from uh, the water, the aquatic ecosystem. And so it's, it's really cool to see that all come together and uh, figure out, you know, is this fish eating stuff that's come from the land? Is it eating stuff that came from the water? And like how much of, how much do they rely on each each different food web? Um, so yeah, if you guys have any questions about food webs, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that as well. Ooh, Rosa, that is a great question. What is the deal with swim bladders? Um, why do some fish have them and some don't? Uh, so fish bladder, fish bladders, swim bladders are an organ that some fish species have that uh, like like a bladder contains, you know, urine or pee, a, a swim bladder contains air. 
And this is an organ that helps them regulate their buoyancy in the water column. So we talked about the fit, different fish living in different parts of a river or lake. Um, and to adjust, like if you can go up and down, you need some way to adjust how buoyant you are or how much you float. Because obviously a fish doesn't want to like, you know, hang out right at the surface because again, those darn birds hanging out, you know, swooping in. If you're right at the surface, you're, you know, you could be, uh, you could be a, a snack for someone. Um, but in some cases, fish also don't want to be right at the bottom either because that's not where they can find their food. Um, it's not where they can, you know, find other, other, other friends. Uh, so the swim bladder helps them uh, adjust where in that water column they are. Um, in some cases, uh, not all fish, and like Rosa said, not all fish have swim bladders. Um, so you probably like wonder how do they regulate their buoyancy? Um, I'm actually thinking of one in particular, which again is not a freshwater species, but if you bear with me, I am, I did my undergraduate work in marine biology. So I kind of feel like I'm, I'm you know, dabbling in both worlds of freshwater and marine biology. Um, but in marine ecosystems, uh, sharks have uh, these big livers, actually, like the liver takes up a lot of their body cavity and the oil and fat in that liver helps them regulate their buoyancy that way. So in some cases, if a fish doesn't have a swim bladder, it can also have um, other organs that it uh, can use to regulate that. Or if it just hangs out on the bottom, it may not need a swim bladder. Um, but that's a, that's a great question, Rosa. Um, another question, do all fish have gills? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, there are some fish like I talked a little bit about earlier that do not have gills or they have, or that, sorry, do not need their gills all the time. Um, so things like uh, lungfish, which are found in Africa um, and Australia and uh, gar, which we have in, in North America and other places, they uh, can, you know, they can use their gills when they're in the water but if the water has really low oxygen, which happens sometimes um, if water gets really warm or there's a lot of um, like chemical, uh, chemical processes happening, you can have low oxygen in water. And uh, in that case, the gills won't be much help uh, because the gills function by like bringing the water over, bringing water over the gills and taking out the oxygen from that. So if you have a fish that lives in really low oxygen environments like gar and lungfish do, they had to also evolve these lung-like structures. So lungs like we have, and you can see them actually go up to the surface of the water, take a breath, like they gulp air, and then they go back down, kind of like, you know, a marine mammal like a dolphin or a whale does. It comes to the surface, grabs, um, grabs a... Uh, a breath and then comes back down. So in some cases, uh, they, you know, they, they do have the gills, but they don't always need to use them. In some cases, they're, uh, you know, it's a reduced function, but that's a great question. Um, okay, we got another, uh, another question. I saw a bunch of people on a beach pulling a shark back into the water. And someone said the shark probably would have died anyway because its organs are too heavy. Does that only happen to sharks? So not speaking is not a shark expert, um, which, you know, I, I'm 
if you want to check out uh, Dr. David Schiffman on Twitter, uh, I believe he's at Why Sharks Matter. He will answer all your shark questions, but I can talk a little bit about um, taking fish out of the water because that is, you know, kind of uh, an important issue. Obviously, you wouldn't like it if someone grabbed you and put you in the water. You'd probably, you know, the fish, it's probably not the best day for them when they get taken out of the water. So one of the ways that scientists and anglers um, you know, try and keep the fish in the best quality of life is minimizing the time when we're handling them taking out of the water um, because it is tough on them. They have, uh, you know, in unless it's like a cool gar or lungfish, they may not be able to breathe because they don't have the water going over their gills. Um, and then they also, uh, a lot of cases, they have a mucus cover on their body, which sounds really gross, but it's really cool. Um, they have a mucus cover that helps them prevent drying out, but if you're handling them outside the water, some of that mucus can come out and that can cause them to get sick. Um, and so we want to minimize that. And so one of the things, uh, there's actually a researcher, uh, Dr. Steve Cook, who is doing a lot with like this keep them wet campaign. And that's like, you know, we, we all love catching fish, like going fishing is really fun but just minimizing the time like we keep the fish out of the water before we release it is uh, really important in terms of just keeping keeping the fish you know healthy and and handling them in a humane way because you know it's tough we we don't we're not normal normally in the water fish aren't normally in the air and so we got to kind of you know be be considerate of of those um but that is a great question i had, the shark thing i think would be really interesting to learn more about um, so another question from Colin, are there common freshwater fish in North America that are also common far away, like Europe, Asia, or Africa? So the first thing that comes to mind is actually going back to that kind of introduced and non-native species. Um, there is a very common fish in North America that you might not believe was actually not native um, here. So if you've ever seen a common carp, or a goldfish. Um, we have those in a lot of rivers, lakes um, around North America. I know in the Great Lakes specifically, you know, there can be rivers and stuff around the Great Lakes region that have these really huge uh, goldfish. And, um, you know, that's because people have released them. They are their pets. But there's also common carp um, in, the, in North America have been around for a while, um, 1800s, etc. You know, they so they've been here, and common carp are originally from Europe, um, Europe and Eurasia. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, it's an example of how species can get moved from one place to another and then become very common within uh, within a particular habitat. So yeah, so common carp not originally native to North America or the United States, North America, um, and but now is a very common common species that you may see a lot. Um, but thanks, Colin. So uh, Hank, who is a great person to follow on Twitter, um, I believe it's at Spoonbill Hank. Um, and you, he is great for talking about, um, you know, paddlefish, which also a really awesome looking fish with a cool, like flat paddle. Um, you should, you should totally check him out. He asks uh, what the biggest threat faced by wetlands in the Great Lakes. And that is, um, 
the biggest threat, hmm, that's a tough one because there are a lot of threats facing the wetlands that I study in the Great Lakes. Um, like I said, they're kind of at this weird boundary between the water, the lake, and the land. And so a lot of the things that we do on the land affect these, these wetlands because they're kind of like our buffer between the lake. And so I'd say probably the biggest challenge or biggest threat against the wetlands is just the fact that we've gotten rid of most of our wetlands. They've been converted to other types of land use. So uh, wetlands have really, really rich, really fertile soil. So in a lot of cases, they were drained and turned into agricultural lands to grow, you know, the crops that feed us. Um, so that's one case that, you know, I, I believe there's a stat that it's something like 50% of all Great Lakes coastal wetlands that existed at one time are now gone um, because we've used it, we've developed it into um, into some of the land that we live on. And so that's a big challenge. It's just a lot of these fish species, other animals, um, which aren't as cool as fish, they all rely on these wetlands. And now we've really reduced the amount of habitat that there is uh, for them. And so that that's one of the big things, but there are a lot of groups doing um, restoration. Uh, so I know in Western Lake Erie, they are doing a lot in terms of trying to bring back the coastal wetlands um, because the wetlands are just, they're like super, the superheroes of the ecosystem world. They are great habitat for fish. They um, help improve water quality. So they kind of act like a sponge and they take in all the nutrients and runoff and kind of, you know, hold it and prevent it from getting into um, getting into a lake. Uh, so they're just these really awesome ecosystems that we are we're trying to to get back and get back some of what what we've lost. Um, but thank you, Hank. That's a great question. Um, how do fish make that mucus cover? Um, and is the mucus cover of a freshwater fish different than a saltwater fish? Um, one of the, you know, again, that's kind of one of those adaptations. Um, you know, I'm really not sure. That's a great question. I don't know too much about the exact physiology of how they create that mucus cover. Um, but yeah, wow, that is Natasha, that's a great question. I, I want to look that up and get back to you because I, I would like to know how they make the mucus cover too. I, the first thing that popped into my head is there's actually a, a saltwater fish called the parrotfish, um, which can create like a mucus bubble. So it's not just the mucus on its scales, but it actually creates a mucus bubble around itself, which is weird because you think it's like a, you've created this giant snot bubble. Um, but it's a way of like keeping itself free of like parasites while it rests at nighttime. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what the mucus cover in general does, like on the scales, not the big snot bubble, uh, is keeping a fish protected from some of the stuff that's around it. You know, it's always in the water, there's parasites, there's whatever. Um, and so the mucus cover serves kind of a protective function. Um, but I would like to know how a mucus cover is made as well. And I will hopefully get, get you an answer. Uh, Stay tuned. Um, but thank you, Natasha. That's a great, uh, a really interesting question that I want to learn more about. Um, we have another question that one time I had a goldfish jump out of the tank. Um, and when I put it back in, all of its scales fell off. And then when it grew back, the side turned white. Do you know why that happened? 
Hmm, Sarah, that is a great question. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, the one thing about scales that's really nice is scales, a fish is always growing at scales. Um, so, you know, even though, it, like Sarah said, it lost its scales when it jumped out, it was able to regrow them. Um, I'm not sure exactly why they grew back a different color. That's really interesting. Um, but one of the cool things about scales that I think is is kind of, I actually didn't know about it until I like was in, uh, which in college, and that's probably like, you know, kind of a, a, a silly confession for an ichthyologist to know. Um, but scales can be used to tell the age of a fish. So uh, there's a couple different structures that fish have where we can use them to find out how old they are. Because um, unfortunately, you know, every time I ask fish, you know, their age, they, they you know, give me the cold shoulder, there's no response. But instead, what we do is we look at scales, we look at um, otoliths, which are the ear bones in fish. And um, since these structures, the scales, the otolith are always growing throughout a fish's life, we can actually count the rings that are in these structures um, at like tree rings almost. You can count the rings and see how old they are. And it's cool that you can do that with both the otolith, which is in the fish's head, as well, well as the scales, um, which because you can just take a scale off and it regrows like Sarah's fish did, um, that's not a lethal way of, of sampling and figuring out how old a fish is. Because um, obviously with the otolith, really tough to get out when the fish is alive. So that's usually a, what we call a lethal sample where we have to sacrifice the fish. Um, but it, we can also use scales um, in that way to age them. So while I don't know exactly why the fish's scales grew back white, that's really interesting. Um, and it's that would actually be kind of a cool way. You'd have to like think about, you know, the different um, different processes that went into to turning it white. Maybe the fish was so stressed and that, you know, you got like gray hair, but no, that's a, a silly kind of um, silly kind of way of looking at, but it would be interesting to to do for me to do a little bit of digging and see if I can find any any places where that's happened before. So thanks, Sarah. So um, I think I have reached the end of your questions and I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you guys so much for for joining me. Um, if there's a few other questions, can hang out a few minutes more. Um, but I just want to thank you guys so much for joining me today. It has been my pleasure talking to you. Thanks for letting me geek out about fish. And, um, you know, I'm happy. I'm hopefully going to answer, figure out a couple of those questions. And I will post things on my Twitter, uh, which is at Dr. Catfish. Hopefully we can, you know, get you the link. Because um, I want to those are some really great questions and I want to make sure I, I get to all of them and figure out some answers for you guys. So with that, uh, have a wonderful Friday wherever you are. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks for joining on Skype a Scientist Live.